you got your Bibles, go with me to Matthew chapter 21. Um, I, I just want to jump in. Uh, my subject today is everything changes. Uh, simple, but double, it has a double meaning. Uh, one of the meanings is everything is always changing. Uh, I was at the movies with my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, and, and the, not the trailers, but the, the, the pre-movie ads that are germane to that theater. Uh, probably no less than four of them ha- had to do with turn off your cell phones. Like 15 years ago, like nobody had to do that. Because the big old bag phone, like you couldn't sneak that thing in. It needed a seat by itself. So one, like, and if that thing rang, like it was, like it was just going to drown out all the sound in the theater and everybody was going to know that it was you. So you didn't have that problem. Or I was sitting with my nephew, uh, my older nephew, and we were watching basketball and we were talking about highlights and we we're talking about somebody getting dunked on and being posterized is what you call it. And I was like, hey, did you see that highlight when such and such? And he was like, no. And I whip out my phone and I pull it up on YouTube. Like 15 years ago, you, didn't have, you couldn't do that. You just had to take my word for it. You just had happened to catch stuff. Like I was wa- on my phone watching commercials. Like we've moved so far. Like before we had to watch commercials and then we hate it, hated it. Then we got DVR so we could skip the commercials. And now we get on YouTube to watch the commercials that we skip on our DVR. Like everything changes. And so, like, things are changing all the time. I get that. But then at the same time, there are moments that something happens that changes everything. Uh, I remember uh, because my family, my parents are African nationals, um, we, I was very aware of the story of Nelson Mandela as I grew up. And obviously Nelson, Nelson Mandela is not a, a perfect man, but I was very aware of his 27-year imprisonment. And I remember being a kid and watching on TV as he got out of jail. I didn't know the guy, and I didn't know the full ramifications of him being released from prison, but it was a big deal in my life. Everything in the world was changing in that moment. I remember the Berlin Wall going down as a kid, and I remember thinking a couple of things, that somebody's going to get in trouble with their mama for breaking the wall. And then the other thing I thought was, the world's changing. Like, there's not going to be an East Germany and a West Germany in the Olympics. There's not going to be this dividing line that was separating families anymore. That the world as we knew it, our geography, our politics, our, our socioeconomics was all going to be changed in that moment because that wall came down. Things changed. Um, things changed in my, have changed in my personal life. February 18th, 2012, uh, I got married. Everything changed for the better. Things are good. Um, we, we recently moved from being in an apartment to moving into a house. Everything changes. So now, in the middle of the night, if I want to break dance or play Dance Central, there's nobody banging on their roof telling me to stop. I can do whatever I want. I got a house. Um, like, and, and if you live in an apartment, you get this. Um, we lived on the backside of our apartment. So there was always that tension of when you bought groceries, do you make multiple trips or do you have the shameful walk of having too much stuff and so you do the penguin waddle with your stuff? Like, I don't have to do that anymore. I just go straight into my garage with my groceries. Like, it's a good thing. Like, life is good. Things have changed. Everything changed. Getting a house. Um, one of the next major changes for my family is one of these days, eventually we're going to have a child. Uh, I don't know anything about it, but all my friends that tell me about it, they tell you everything changes. Um, and it changes different for different people. So for dad, it's hospital room selfies with them and the baby. Um, but for mom, it's, oh, your baby is so cute. How old? 14 weeks, three days, 15 hours, and 27 minutes. How do you know that exactly? Because when I got my epidural was the last time that I slept. Like, like, there's, a, like there's this knowledge of everything changes. And I say that to you because, I know that was stereotypical, but um, there is this understanding that there are moments that everything changes and there's, and there's a reality that everything's changing. And as we dive into our text, this is one of those moments where everything seems to be changing and everything changes. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. 
and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put them and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let me do a little bit of shaping here. Um, because without, we didn't, we didn't grow up in this era. There's some things that we don't know. And so without explaining some of these things, some of the significance of this particular story is lost. Um, first of all, you got to know about the author. Matthew uh, was an author that was writing to a Jewish audience, to the covenant people of God that understood symbolism, understood the Old Testament prophecies, understood a lot of that. And so when you read Matthew, you will often see Old Testament quotations like the one that we read that almost prove that the guy that you've been waiting for, that Jesus was it. So Matthew often goes through great lengths to say Jesus did this action and it ties directly to this prophecy that was fulfilled. Another thing that you see in Matthew is that Matthew often has this rhythm of Jesus will teach something and then Jesus will live it out. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount that that if you've grown up in church, that's where the Beatitudes lie, the blessed are they that um, in in the scripture. And, And a lot of that Jesus talks about and then he lives it out in the kingdom. Then he begins to just talk about in parables, this is what the kingdom and the king will look like. And then when we drop into this portion of the scripture, you see Jesus displaying that and showing that. But one of the weird things that you see is previous to, uh, to the chapter before this, you never see Jesus like walking around like you see on cartoons with the glow in his hands out. I am the Messiah. Like Jesus doesn't do that. Like oftentimes, in fact, Jesus does the opposite. Like Jesus will perform a miracle and he'll be like, Shh, don't tell anybody that I did this. Or people will begin to say, well, you're, you're the son of David or you're the king. And he would be like, no, don't do that. Don't, don't tell people who I am. But as you move into this portion of scripture, something seems to be changing because the story before this, Jesus is walking down the road and there are two men that are blind and they scream out, son of David, have mercy on us. And he heals them of their blindness, but he doesn't say to them, don't tell anybody that I'm the king. And it seems to be like there's this transition and all along the way, he's beginning to identify, I'm pulling back the veil. I want you to know fully who I am. In this portion of scripture, he's getting ready to go into Jerusalem and it's the season of Passover. And Passover was, a, was one of the festivals in which Jewish males were required to come into the city. And it was a big time. Conservative estimates say that there were 180,000 people in the city when normally about 30,000 would have been in the city. So six times the amount of people are crowded into that city. And as Jesus is making his way there, there are things that people of that culture would recognize that Jesus were doing that for us just seems to be geographic landmarkers. So one of the things that seems to be happening is that Jesus is coming in from the east of the city going past the Mount of Olives. And one of the Old Testament prophecies was that the king, when he comes, would set his feet upon the Mount of Olives. And so as these people are walking with him and he's beginning to display that he's king and they see him go past the Mount of Olives, there must have been a light bulb that went off that was like, this could be the guy. He just went past the Mount of Olives. And so as they're watching this unfold and watching this be laid out, Jesus is beginning to do these very strategic, very obvious things that declare to the people, I'm not just some guy, I'm the king that you've been waiting for. On its surface, it oftentimes doesn't look that way. 
for instance, uh, as we read the story in verse two, Jesus tells them to go into a village, untie a donkey and bring it to them and tell the people. And if anybody asks about it, say the Lord has need of it. Before I even get into the theological implications of any of that, did Jesus just advocate stealing? Like, if, if I, I'm going to turn up here, uh, Josh Moore, if I say, hey, Josh, go out on the 78 and go to Village Motors, and there's a, there's a red Mustang there, and break into it. And if the owners come running out, they're like, oh, my pastor has need of it. Here's what will happen next. He will text me and say, well, went to Village Motors, and I broke into the car, and the Saxe police showed up, and I told him that the Lord has need of it. And they said, oh, that's awesome. And then they gave me my own nice room at the Saxe police headquarters where I could sleep in all by myself till my parents come get me. Like, that would not be good. Like, I don't, like I've stolen some things in my life, nothing major, but like, I never thought, oh, the Lord has need of it. And then if I say that to somebody, that it's going to be okay. Like, maybe I'm going to try that somewhere. Like, maybe I'm going to, no, I probably won't. That's probably a bad idea. I, but Jesus literally tells them to go in the city and just take it. And, and I'm like, this is not even like King Jesus or Savior Jesus or sweet little baby Jesus. This is gangster Jesus, like stealing people's stuff. And I don't, I, don't, I don't even know how I feel about it. But he pulls it off because it works. And one of the things that you've got to understand is that this very, the very nature of this story displays two things, his authority and his humility. And we'll start with the authority. Uh, truth of the matter is we don't like authority. Um, Part of being grown up is saying you're old enough that nobody, has, nobody can tell you what you have to do. Like, we like that. We like the feeling of I'm in charge of my own life. I run things. We don't like the idea of the authorities. If you have the propensity to drive faster than the speed limit, you're not like, oh, hey, the authorities are here to pull me over. Like, nobody likes that. And part of what we don't like about authority is because we've seen authority abused in our life. Like we, we just don't have a comfort with the idea of somebody being over us. That idea of authority being the right to have control. We like being in control. And somebody else having authority freaks us out. And, and we often don't trust people that don't seem like they have the right to have authority. Let me give you a couple of for instances. Um, there's been this weird uh, thing in entertainment and in movies about promoting um, things that are attacks on our national government. So there's a movie called Olympus Fallen where there's a guy who's a Secret Service agent and the White House gets taken over and he's like the only man that can save the president and save the nation. Well, at the, shortly thereafter, there was another movie called White House Down, which is exactly the same movie. Um, and Channing Tatum is the bodyguard and the president is Jamie Foxx. So I'm watching the movie and, well, I'm not watching the movie. I'm watching the trailer because I'm not going to see it because I already seen Olympus Fall and it's the same thing. And, and as I'm watching this trailer, I'm like, I don't want to live in America where Jamie Foxx is president. Like, <laughs> you have no right to be control. Denzel, Morgan Freeman, I can do that. But Jamie Foxx, probably not. I'm not doing that. Because you have no right to be in control. Like, for some of you that go way back, you were Wanda on A Living Color. You have no right to be in control. The other, for instance, that I'm going to give you is this. So I'm standing in my sister's kitchen helping my nephew uh, put together his remote control car. And I just got to, when I was a kid, there was one battery and they gave it to you. Now, kids' toys, there's 73 batteries and you got to go buy them. And it's like, you got to get the D battery and you got to get the C battery. I don't even know what a C battery looks like. And then you got to get the double A's. And it's like all this crazy stuff. And so I'm standing there trying to fix his toy and he walks up to me. He's three years old and he says, Are you a pastor? And I'm not sure where he's going with this. 
Like, is he questioning my manhood? Like, I can't fix this toy, and so you must talk for a living because you can't build anything? I don't know where he's going with this. He's three. I don't even know what he, if he knows what pastor means. That might mean, are you tall? And so I'm like, yes. And he says, me too. And my sister's like, oh, that's cute. He's going to grow up and be like you. And like, this is a warm moment. But if my little three-year-old nephew walks up on the stage and says he's going to preach to you today, nobody's going to be like, I'm taking notes. This is going to change my life. You're like, he's three. What authority does he have to tell me anything? Like, we hate authority. But I would dare say to you that sometimes we miss that Jesus has it. So we love the Great Commission. If you didn't grow up in church, Great Commission is that, that mandate from Jesus for us to go into all the world and to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all the things that he's, that he's commanded us. And so it was this great mandate to go and be and extend the kingdom. But the thing that he says right before it is, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. And it is this loud proclamation that whatever I say next, you need to do it. And in this moment, Jesus is walking, in, walking into the city and he sends two disciples and says, go steal this. And it actually works because he says the Lord has need of it. It's a sign that he has the authority to take what he wants. In the, in the United Kingdom, there used to be a law called the law of impressment. And the law of impressment was this idea that if the king or any representative of the king needed something to, to execute their affairs, that they had the right to walk in and just take it. So if they needed your home for something, they would take it. If they, needed, if they needed one of the people in your family to be part of the Royal Navy, they just grabbed them and said that you have to do this. But it was this unlimited authority to say anything that is within the boundaries of this kingdom belongs to us. Um, we, because we live in a democratic government, that probably makes us a little bit unsettled. But even in our own government, we have something like that called eminent domain, where if a state government or a municipality or even the, the federal government says that we need this property to, to be given to us to do something, there's a compensation for that. But they can take over property to achieve their purposes. There's this idea in Scripture that when it comes to God, that there is not anything that's been created that's not his. I, in the, the psalmist in the 24th chapter, David is writing and he being a king writes about the ultimate king. And he says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that everything that dwells therein belongs to him. It's what the theologian said that when he, when he said that, that God steps over the balcony of heaven and looks at all of creation and there's not anything that he can say to it that it's not mine. And so there's this unlimited authority that Jesus is displaying here. But on the flip side, he's displaying this great humility. Um, Donkeys, and I'm not knocking donkeys, they have a purpose, they're, they're beasts of burden, but donkeys are not that awesome. Like no girl has had this dream of her knight in shining armor riding in on a donkey. There's no Greek mythology story about the Trojan donkey entering into the city. Like nobody wants that gift, so it doesn't work. Um, in fact, there's about three famous donkeys that I can think of. There's Balaam's donkey, which people only usually talk about him because they want to cuss in church. Or there's Shrek's donkey, who's just kind of annoying. Or there's Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, and he's depressed. Don't nobody want to be him. So there's, there's not a lot going on with donkeys here that seems to be powerful and strong. But think about the king of glory showing that he's the king, getting on this, this beast of burden, this lowly animal, and walk and riding into the kingdom. And let's, let's be careful here because he says the Lord has need of it, but don't think it's this deep physical need of Jesus. He'd been walking in from Caesarea Philippi. He'd walked over, over 100 miles. It wasn't like he got to the last mile and was like, I'm really tired. I think I need a donkey. But one, it fulfilled prophecy. 
So that quote of the prophet comes, it's actually a combined quote of Isaiah and Zechariah, Zechariah 9. It talks about that he will come in and it says with righteousness and majesty, but it also says that he comes in humbly, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And it's this idea of there is this king that has the sovereign power, but he rides in in a very humble nature. I promise I'm coming to your neighborhood. So the disciples go and they, they get the donkey and they, they put their cloaks upon the donkey and he rides it into the city. And then as Jesus enters into the city, this is a major moment. People are running out and they're laying down their cloaks and they're laying down branches as if they're rolling out the red carpet for Jesus to say that we honor you, we respect you, we recognize you, we're excited about you, that the king that we've been waiting for to overthrow Rome is going to, has just showed up in our city, that everything is about to change and this is a good day. Literally it says that they start screaming out, Hosanna, son of David. That word Hosanna, the original text is written in Greek, and it is a translation of a Hebrew word that says, God, save us. So these people are standing there, and the word that they're saying is God, save us, but they say it twice, Hosanna to the Son of David, and they say Hosanna in the highest. And scholars say that in the first century, that word shifted from being this deep cry, God, that we need your help desperately to deliver us to, it was just kind of church language that you used when something good was going on. So there seemed to be this minor shift in the mentality of people that they went from saying, God, we desperately need your deliverance to, hey, this is a good moment. We're going to shout right here. Then the people are standing around watching. So there's a crowd that's entering the city with Jesus. And then there's a bunch of people who have come to Jerusalem because of pilgrimage. And they say, who is this guy riding in on the donkey? Hear their language. And the crowd said in verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Sometimes what we say reveals what we really think. Because they had been proclaiming, yes, he's the king, this is a great moment, we're rolling out the red carpet. And when they were asked who this was, their response wasn't, this is the Christ, the savior of the world. This was, they didn't say, this is the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. They said, this is the prophet, Jesus. Nothing wrong with being a prophet, unless you're more than that. Nothing wrong with being a prophet unless you are the one that's been called as the son of God to change and save humanity, that you are literally the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting on, the one that was named Jesus because he was going to save his people. Like there's, there seems to be this small shift that the people recognize Jesus and they can say who he is and they can use all the religious language, but they don't seem to fully get who he is. Uh, in fact, if you read scripture, this is not the only time that that happens. Most of the time as you read scripture, you see people that are around Jesus, that are encountering Jesus, and they don't fully get who Jesus is. So I'll give you a for instance. Uh, last week was Christmas Sunday, and Pastor Brian read the Christmas story, and it tells the story of the Magi. And they show up at Herod's palace, and, and they say, Herod, we, we know that the king of, Jew, of the Jews was being born because we saw the star in the sky. We assume you're king now, so he's born in your household. And he's like, huh. And he was troubled and he goes to the scribes and the Pharisees and he says, hey, tell me what you know about the Messiah. And they begin to detail that he's going to be born in Bethlehem and all that he needed to know. But none of them leave the palace to go find him. So on one level, they understood the story, but they didn't understand who he was. It's the same thing that happens in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus delivers a man that's demon possessed. And they come to him and they say, you did this by the power of Beelzebub. You did this by the power of the devil. And in fact, this is a dramatic shift in the scripture even there, because that's when Jesus moves into one, he gets angry. But then two, he moves into teaching in parables as if to say, I'm going to those that get it, get it. And those that don't, don't. 
But they watched Jesus do something miraculous and they judged him for it and said, you must be of Satan. They were around him, but they didn't get him. The disciples weren't very much better. So they have these moments where they proclaim the goodness and the greatness of God. They have this understanding. So when Jesus shows up and he gets it and he tells them how to fish, Peter gets on his feet and he says, you must be the Lord and says, you must forgive me of my sins. There's a moment where he gets it. But at the same time, the next time they're in a boat, there's a storm and they're freaking out. Hey, Jesus, can you save us? As if they forgot who he was. They have moments where Peter does great, and when he asks, who do men say that I am, they they answer that. But then when they ask, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the son of the living God. And he gets this great pat on the back that only that flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but only my father in heaven. And then five verses later, he gets called Satan. You are completely disqualified from getting the answer right if it ends up you being called Satan. Like, if you do something awesome for your wife and then you end up sleeping on the couch, it doesn't count. Same type scenario here. So again and again, people who are around Jesus kind of know, but they don't fully understand. And in fact, the only time in scripture that you see anybody get it right while Jesus is walking the earth with them are demons. So Jesus shows up and these demons have possessed this guy in the, in, in the, in the Gennacerines and he, he's cutting himself and they've, they've chained him and confined him to the, to the cemetery and Jesus shows up and the demons literally say, you're the son of the most high God. Have you come early to destroy us? There's like, there's no tension here like, Jesus, we're going to go one-on-one like a Bruce Lee movie. Like, there's none of that. There's like, you're the son of the most high God. You have the authority to, to destroy us. Um, if you would be nice to us, send us into the pigs. We didn't know that this was coming this early. We thought we had a couple of millennium before this was going to happen. But uh, you're here. You have all the power. We get who you are. I just entered your neighborhood. Because my fear for us is that we have the language, but we don't have the recognition. My fear for us is that we have this this picture of Jesus, but when we see Jesus like this, this may be the Jesus that we don't want. Because this is the Jesus that has the law of impressment. This is the Jesus that has imminent domain. This is the Jesus that has unlimited sovereignty and complete and total authority that steps into a situation and can literally say that I want that and it's his. This is the Jesus that can literally step into a situation and say that I'm going to use this for my purposes and my glory and display my sovereignty and my power. And the tension that rises up within us is how do we respond to that? As I say that, what's going through your mind at this moment that you're saying, I don't want Jesus to tell me that he wants that. Uh, We're getting ready to move into a new year. and, And I know that for most of us, we want some practical teaching of how to make the next year successful, how to make this next year better than this previous year. And one of the things that I would say to you is I hope that that happens for you. But what do you do if Jesus steps in the next year and says, I want to take you through some things that are going to be gut wrenching and difficult, but I want you to experience another level of my grace. How do, how do you deal with that tension of him saying that I'm going to lay my hands, my power on some things, I'm going to shift some things, everything's going to change. How, how do you deal with that? I would dare say to you that an encounter with Jesus ought to change everything. There's a small word in here that we probably skip over because we, we don't speak the original language Greek. Um, but in verse 10, it says that the whole city was stirred up. That word stirred uh, in the Greek is where we get our word seismic and the word seismograph. That's the instrument that we use to measure the immensity of an earthquake. And so literally what they were saying is when Jesus came into the city, the 180,000 people minimum that were there celebrating Passover were shaken. That nothing was left unrattled. That was that same word is used two other times in the gospel of Matthew. And so when Jesus died, it says that the veil was torn and that everything shook. It's seismic. 
And then in Matthew 28, when the, or I'm sorry, Matthew 27, when the stone is rolled away, it says that the stone rolled away, and there is this great seismic, this great earthquake, and the angel of the Lord sat upon the stone. And it was this understanding that in that moment, that whether it was Jesus entering in the city, whether it was Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross, or whether it was Jesus raising on the third day in glory, that in that moment when Jesus encountered what it was ever in that atmosphere, that everything changed. Again, in your neighborhood. So encountering Jesus ought to change everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ in my should change the way that I interact with my wife. It should change the way that I do my job. It should change how I deal with my, my neighbors. It should change how I do business. It should change the small things about me. Or maybe the other way of saying is that if nothing has changed since you've encountered Jesus, I would dare say you haven't encountered him. So there's this shaking of everything that happens when Jesus enters into the situation and nothing is left the same. And the challenge for us is as we move into this next year is do we walk in that? Do we understand that? Do we, do we feel that? Do we recognize Jesus as the humble king that's entering into our life that has the authority to say that he wants something and has the power to change it all? Because my fear is, like the people in this story, we may have the language, but do we have the understanding? The difficult thing about following Jesus is following Jesus. Because sometimes he leads you where you don't want to go. And sometimes when Jesus as king steps into a situation, you're like the people in the story. Yes, the king that we've been waiting for is going to overthrow the Roman government. You've got to understand the, the, the geopolitical uh, layout of the time. So Galilee was north of Jerusalem, and Galilee was still under the rule of Herod, but Herod was a second-class king, really a second-class king because he was still under Roman rule, but Jerusalem was directly under Roman rule. So when this guy comes into the city and they're proclaiming that he's son of David, that's a title of his, his authority, his kingship. If you're any in the Roman government, you're thinking, okay, it's time to fight. This guy's trying to overthrow us. And these people are thinking Jesus is going to enter the city and he's going he's to establish his kingdom. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. And there's literally frustration for them that Jesus doesn't do that. But he comes in not on a war horse. Like if I'm going to go to battle, I'm not riding a donkey. I'm not riding a horse either. I'm riding a tank. <laughs> But he comes in on a donkey. In fact, kings only rode donkeys in times of peace. It was this idea that whether you were negotiating with, uh, for stuff with a foreign entity and you wanted them to know that you weren't trying to come in as this overlord or whether it was after a battle had been won and you're coming in to declare peace to the people, you only rode donkeys in times of peace. Ultimately, we know because we have the full detail of Scripture that Jesus was going to achieve peace a few days later on the cross. But Jesus wasn't riding into the city to make war with Rome. He was coming to establish peace with God. So as Jesus comes in the city riding this donkey with this idea of establishing peace, it's kind of funny because the peace hadn't been established yet. So let me put it like this. Um, if you're watching the Olympics and some guy walks up to the starting line with a gold medal around his neck, You'd be like, that is absurdly arrogant. Like, you haven't won the race yet. Like, and you better win this race by a whole lot if you're going to wear the gold medal before you ever. How did you get the gold medal before the race? Because it's like this proclamation that I know I'm going to win this thing. So in their eyes, he hadn't beat Rome. So for him to walk into the city on, on a donkey, we don't have peace yet. 
Even on the theological level, we hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't physically gone through the work of carrying the sins of the world and absorbing the wrath of God. And so that hadn't even been achieved yet. So for him to ride in on peace was almost as if he was saying, the battle's already been won. Huh. Let me, let me clue you in on something. The, the word that we use for gospel is a Greek word called evangelion. Evangelion is a military term. Uh, what, what would happen is they had walled cities, and so they would get inside of their walled cities and, uh, when they would send the army out to protect the city. And so there would be a reporter that would be sent from the people, and he would go out and he would watch the battle. And so if the battle's going on and, and, just, and the, the home team was getting worked, they were getting beat, he'd run back in the city and say, hey, we've been defeated, all is lost. But if he was out there and he was watching and they were having victory and they were winning, he'd come running back into the city and he would just start declaring evangelion. You can come out of hiding. Good news. We're winning the battle. Good news. You don't have to fight. You don't have to figure out how to make your tools and the weapons. You don't have to protect your women and your children. You don't have to go out and face an enemy army. They're not going to invade you anymore. Peace has been achieved. Evangelion, the gospel, good news. Your battle has been won for you. So Jesus literally riding the donkey into the city before the battle had ever been won was saying to all of those people, I'm not even fighting the fight against Rome that you're trying to fight, but the fight against your sin, the fight against the oppression, against the sins of the world, that that battle has already been won for you. That as I ride the donkey into the city, I just want to declare to you that there's peace. Battles that you can't win, weapons that you can't war with, things that you cannot do on your own, Evangelion, good news, the battle that you have no idea how to win, I've already achieved your victory. So Jesus begins to put on display that I've got this. And the challenge for us is there's two sides to this equation. One, for those who claim to be his, do we see him as the humble king who has the right to anything in our world? On the other side of the ledger, as you sit here and you think about the next year of your life, do you trust him to bring peace to difficult situations? I alluded to it before, the difficult thing about following Jesus is following Jesus. Oftentimes, we want him to defeat Rome and he wants to transform our heart. So there are times that he will put us in situations that we wish he would change the situation, but instead he changes us. Isn't that what we see in Scripture? Read Philippians. 16 times, no less than 16 times, Paul gives some mandate to rejoice, to give joy, um, to take heart, um, which is all fine and good, except for Paul is locked in prison. You usually have to encourage people who are in prison. They're not usually encouraging you. And there's nothing about Paul that says, God, get me out of this situation. In fact, you read chapter one, he talks about my imprisonment has emboldened me for the gospel and now I'm winning prisoners and guards. Like, what do you do with a guy like that? But there was something about what was inside of Paul that though the situation didn't change, when the king that brings peace and wins battles showed up in his life, gave him joy in the midst of circumstances that didn't warrant it. So you move into 2014 and you have circumstances that won't change. Do you trust the king, the humble king to ride into your life and through his authority and power to transform you even if he doesn't transform him? 
I'm going to ask you guys to stand to your feet. Let me say this. If you're here today and you're hearing what I'm saying and you're like, I heard what you said about the king riding into the city and he was coming to make not war with Rome, but peace with God. And I really want that. But I got so much junk. It would take him a whole lifetime to wipe off the ledger of the stuff that I've done. It would take him a whole lifetime to reconcile the rebellion that I've had with God. Can I tell you Evangelion? Good news. The king of peace is riding into your life to declare to you that the battle's already been won. What you're fighting, the battle's already been won. What you seem to be so oppressed and locked up by, the battle's already been won. And I'll be honest with you, I can endure anything if I know how it turns out. I'm a sports fan. And I'm not one of those guys that's like, oh, don't tell me what the score is. Like, if my team's losing by 20, I don't want to watch it unless I know they win at the end. <laughs> and the crazy thing about Scripture is it's probably not a very good story because it always gives away the ending. But I can endure whatever if I know the end. So I can endure Adam and Eve blowing it. I can endure Noah blowing it. I can endure all the stuff that we talk through the story because again and again, God begins to display through Jesus that, hey, in the end, we win. And so can I tell you, whatever you're enduring right now, I'm just going to go ahead and skip that part of the DVD and go straight to the ending. The king of peace is going to ride into your life and he wins. So I, I want to invite you to that. I want to invite you into that. All you have to do is receive it. Salvation is his. He does that. Deliverance is his. He does that. Trust his power. But on the other side of the ledger, I, I want to challenge us. We sang a song called Came to My Rescue. Um, it's the idea of what happens in a heart after they've been rescued out of the mire and the muck of sin. And when Jesus reaches down, when, when we call and he answers by saving us, it's, uh, we love that. That's Savior Jesus. I don't think anybody in this room would have a difficulty singing about Savior Jesus. We like Savior Jesus. But the part that we sang was, in my life, in our world, in my love, be lifted high. Be displayed, be top priority, be sovereign king. That's king and Lord Jesus. Sometimes that's the Jesus that we don't want. Because king and Lord Jesus has the law of impressment. He has eminent domain. He has the ability to step over creation and say, there's not anything here that's not mine. And so he may be saying to you, you know, for a long time, I've been stirring your heart. I've been calling you to step into doing something that proclaims my glory. Yes, I know that you, uh, you're, you're comfortable, you're safe, you're, your life's good, but I, I'm challenging you to do something crazy. Uh, parents, let me say it this way. Uh, he may be challenging you to to back off the kids a little bit and let them pursue the crazy dream of being a missionary because we love sending money to missions but we're scared to send our kids maybe he's saying to you that I'm calling you to reconcile that relationship 
So in your life, display my sovereignty because it's not even your fault, your fault, but absorb what you can absorb and reconcile what you can reconcile. But I'm calling you to, to fix what's broken for the glory of my name that in my life, I want you to be displayed. Maybe for some of us, he's saying that in our world, um, my hope is that my neighbors are a little bit confused by me. I hope they know that I'm a Christian. And so they've got this idea that I'm judgmental and I look down my nose and I say things about them that frustrate them. I, I'm sure, I hope they think that because I've got the label Christian. But then when I, but when I think about him, like he plays with my kids and he, he moves my trash can back and he invites me to cookouts and he buys me birthday presents and, 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 and invites me to anniversary events. Like he's a really great guy, but he loves Jesus and he calls himself a Christian. That's, that's a little weird for me. In my world, I hope that he's lifted high. And in my love, I pray that he's lifted high. I pray that the, the old saints used to say that it was a, that he'd be uppermost in my affections. That that which I feel about him, that that which I think, that, that my affection is first and foremost towards him. So let me play that out in a very real scenario for us in this day and age. That the thing that I get most excited about is the person in the work of Jesus Christ. That I get more excited about being around the things of God and the people of God and in the house of God than whether my favorite team wins this afternoon or not. So let me challenge us. As much as we love Savior Jesus, we're going to be in a lot of trouble if we move into 2014 and everything changes and we're not in love with Lord Jesus. There is a challenge to not just call him Savior, but to call him Lord, to say that you are indeed the humble king that has the right to ride in my life and, and place your claim on everything and say, I have need of that and I'm just going to give it to you. So A.W. Tozier used to say this and my youth pastor used to often say it to me. Christians don't tell lies in church, they sing them. So I want to challenge your heart. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship. And we're going to sing in my life, in our, word, in our world, in my love, be lifted high. You be king. You be on display. You be uppermost in my affections. You be priority. I'm going to be honest with you. I would rather us be silent in truth than be in harmony about a lie. I would rather be honest and say, Lord, you could have it all, even if that's really, really uncomfortable for me. So I'm going to challenge us into honesty. I'm going to pray. Pastor Bear is going to lead us. And if you will, declare to the Lord and say, you can have it. Everything that's me, it's yours. I believe that's success for 2014. Success will be found in obedience. Let's pray. Jesus, your king, I pray that today you, in the very same way, would come down the road, come not just to our neighborhood, but come right into our hearts and establish that as your throne. That, Lord, as we move into this next year, that our goal is not to make you genie Jesus or, or, or emergency Jesus that you fulfill our needs when we need you or you fulfill our deepest wants. I, I hope that does happen for us. But Lord, I pray that we make you Lord Jesus and that anything in our life that you say that you want, we can say the Lord has need of it. It's yours. For those that may be far from you that are under the sound of my voice, I pray that they would understand you as humble King Jesus that's come to bring peace, that's come to declare Evangelion, the battle's been won, and that they would come in alignment. Bring us all in alignment with your authority, 
and your peacemaking humility. It's in your majestic and matchless name I pray. Amen and amen.